If you attended a southern church as a child, you know a familiar tune. It's a Sunday school favorite. It's called Deep and Wide. There are even hand motions. Remember the lyrics? Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Just be glad I didn't try to sing it, okay? I bring up the song because that's what I've entitled our message today, Deep and Wide. Ezekiel chapter 47, let's read the first 12 verses. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim. A river that could not be crossed. He said, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live where the river goes. It shall be that fishermen shall stand by it, from Engedi to Enegliam. Will, there will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for medicine. The Barnum and Bailey Circus had an exhibit that was called the Happy Family. A cage featured lions, tigers, panthers, and they all squatted around a little lamb. These fierce predators seemed in harmony with the lamb. Well, one day, P.T. Barnum was showing off his exhibit when someone asked him, do you ever have any problems with this strange mixture of animals? Barnum replied, oh, never. Apart from replenishing the lamb every now and then, they get along just fine. So much for the happy family. 
as much as we would like for it to be true, that everyone just gets along, in this world it's not. Predators exist among animals and among men. But one day, Jesus will return, and he'll end the hostility caused by man's sin. He'll usher us into an age of peace. We're told in Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What an amazing time that will be. The conflict boiling over in the world today will be a distant memory. Understand, God's redemption will not be complete until all that sin has twisted has been restored. One day, all that sin has soiled will be cleansed of its stain. Romans 8 verse 22 puts it this way, For the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Right now, the creation groans over sin's effects. When the trees creak and when the frogs croak, they do so in a melancholy tune. Julie Andrews sings, The hills are alive with the sound of music, and yet sadly, they sing today in a minor key. All of nature knows that things are not as they should be, not as God meant for them to be. One day, though, Jesus is going to remove the curse of sin. The Bible teaches that on a day yet future, Jesus will return. He'll defeat his enemies. He'll establish his kingdom in Israel and around the world. And he'll launch an age of peace and prosperity that will last for a thousand years. At that time, Jesus will roll back sin's curse on nature. The world and all its ecosystems will morph. Pollution will vanish. The oceans and the ozone will be repaired. When Jesus sits on the throne, wolf and lamb, man and animal will live as one big happy family. What a day that will be. Once a woman, she bragged to her pastor that she had a one-way ticket to heaven. The pastor replied, well, if that's the case, you're going to miss out on a lot. I have a round-trip ticket. For when we depart earth via undertaker or rapture, it's not for the last time. We're coming back. Jude 14 tells us about Jesus' second coming. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And if you know Jesus, you'll be one of that army of saints. The Bible teaches that when Jesus returns to take over this earth, he won't come alone. You and I will be by his side. We'll be commissioned to reign and rule with him. In that day, the Lord will usher in a golden age, a Shangri-La. He'll put an end to sin and all its tragic consequences. Jesus has saved our soul, but he'll also save our planet. He'll restore the polluted planet to a Garden of Eden, and you and I will help him govern this earth. This is what Ezekiel 47 is about. Ezekiel foresees an environmental miracle. He looks ahead to the kingdom age in the land of Israel at the future temple in Jerusalem, and he describes his vision 
in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now, whenever I read this, my first reaction is not a pleasant one. I sort of squirm. For there have been a couple of occasions when we've come up to the doors of our church and we've noticed water flowing out from under the threshold. And it is never a good thing. Once a toilet got stuck and overflowed. Another time the ice maker back there in the hallway sprung a leak. Still another time the gutters clogged up and a few classrooms flooded. And I would imagine for folks who've just endured a hurricane over in North Carolina, water under the threshold is not a good sign for a pastor when he comes up to the doors of the church. Not so, though, for Ezekiel. For when he sees water seeping out from under the threshold of the temple, he gets excited. You need to know the Middle East is a region of the world rich in oil but sparse in water. In fact, any trickle of water becomes a blessing. And this is especially true in and around Jerusalem. Most Israeli cities, they'll have public fountains and pools, but not Jerusalem. For there the water is scarce. It's a scarce resource. Have you noticed large urban areas are generally located on rivers? Babel was built on the Euphrates River. Cairo on the Nile, London on the Thames, Rome on the Tiber, Atlanta on the Hooch. But Jerusalem has no river. In ancient times, its chief water supply was a spring. The Gihon Spring feeds the Pool of Siloam. When we go to Jerusalem, we often walk up Hezekiah's Tunnel. Its water flow is the Gihon Spring. Well, here the prophet Ezekiel, he sees a new subterranean spring bubbling up on the Temple Mount. It's bubbling up from the holy place. It's flowing south of the altar, he says. Pure, fresh spring water is rising up near the altar of God. And Ezekiel notices that the further this water flows, the deeper and the wider it grows. In fact, he's escorted into the stream. He and his tour guide Go with the flow. Ezekiel jumps in and he begins to wade in the direction of the current. He walks a thousand cubits downstream. Now realize a Babylonian cubit was about 21 inches. The length from the king's elbow to the tip of his finger. Thus a thousand Babylonian cubits would be 1,750 feet or 483 yards are put in terms that you men can understand, nearly six football fields. Ezekiel is standing now in this water, ankle deep. He's splashing his sandals. Cool water feels good on a hot day. But then he wades another thousand cubits downstream. He's now off the Temple Mount, and he's standing in the middle of the Kidron Valley. The water level now is up to his knees. Well, he's still having fun wading through the current. The stream is still a gentle brook. Ezekiel and his guide then go another thousand cubits southward. He's now 3,000 cubits or about a mile downstream. Now the water is up to Ezekiel's waist. 
and he's tucked his robe up under his belt just to wade through the water. The current is getting stronger. It's getting faster. Finally, Ezekiel moves another 1,000 cubits southward. Now, 4,000 cubits from its source, what was once just a trickle has now become a full-fledged river. The prophet Ezekiel is now in over his head. The powerful river is too swift to swim. It's too wide to cross. Ezekiel has to get out of the water, and he has to walk along the riverbank. And there he makes another startling discovery. The water is so clean, it's so pure, that its banks have sprouted groves of various trees. The river has become a source of nourishment. It's helped to spawn foliage and fruit. Verse 12 says that the leaves on these trees never wither. The fruit never fails. These are fruit trees that never go dormant. They blossom with new fruit every month. The river makes them continually productive. Even the leaves on these trees are useful. They contain healing ingredients, we're told. Rather than take medicine, people just eat leaves from the trees. Imagine needing a prescription field and rather go to the pharmacy. All you have to do is go to the salad bar. Ezekiel follows this river another 40 miles to its ultimate end. From a spring by the altar to a trickle in the temple to a creek running through the valley, now a river in the desert, it finally dumps into the Dead Sea. And there another miracle takes place. The saline depths of the salt sea are healed. The salt sea springs to life. Realize the tap water from your faucet contains 1% salt. When you go to the beach, you swim in ocean water that's about 7% salt. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is about 12% salt, but the Dead Sea in Israel is 33% salt. That's five times saltier than the ocean. Salt crystals form a white foam that just sort of sits on the surface of the sea. When you swim in the Dead Sea, the water is heavier than your body, which makes it impossible for you to sink. You don't even have to tread water. You can just lay down on your back and you can read a newspaper. The salty water holds you up. And it's this enormous salt content that makes the Dead Sea dead, for nothing can live in its waters. No animals drink from the Dead Sea. No fish swim under its surface. The Dead Sea is the ultimate dead end. Yet when the water from the temple reaches the headwaters of the Dead Sea, a healing will take place. The lethal salt gets neutralized. The river that flows from God's house purifies the sea's poisonous waters. Notice from Engedi, that beautiful oasis that we visit, to Eneglium, which is today a dried up spring on the south shore. What was once a dead sea will teem with life. Fishermen will cast in their nets. They'll clean their nets from Engedi to Eneglium. We're told in verse 10, their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. This is incredible. 
The Great Sea is the Mediterranean Ocean. Imagine the Dead Sea will become a fisherman's paradise. The same genre of fish that are today in the ocean of the Mediterranean, you'll find in the waters of the Dead Sea. Chartered fishing excursions will be operating on the Dead Sea. Can you imagine? Notice the amazing promise in verse 9. Everything will live wherever the river goes. Everything will live wherever the river goes. Whatever God's river touches gets healed. It's a curative tonic. Every putrid pond, every cesspool, every stagnant eddy into which this water seeps will be transformed. And this is just a small glimpse of the incredible transformations that will take place all over the world when Jesus rules the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. If Jesus is able to heal the waters of the Dead Sea, then cleaning up some oil spill in the Gulf will be no problem. Ezekiel 47 teaches us that one day there will be a little bit of heaven everywhere on earth. This planet will be a garden again. The whole world will be a tropical paradise. And let me suggest that what we see happening here in Ezekiel 47 isn't just fulfilled in the end of time. I believe it occurs any time. Jesus is allowed to sit on the throne, even the throne of a person's life. What will one day occur on planet earth can take place today in the spiritual life of a person who surrenders the crown and course of their life to Jesus. To me, this end times river is analogous to God's influence in a believer's life. You remember Jesus promised us in John 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When I surrender my life to Jesus, when I give the reins of my life over to Jesus and give him all my heart, a love, a peace, a joy, A new energy, a power bubbles up in me. It's real. A spiritual current of life-giving vitality begins to flow into areas of my life that were once salty and dead. As the living water flows, transformation occurs. Heard a funny story told from Joe Montana's college days at Notre Dame. The famous NFL quarterback previously attended Notre Dame, and he took a course entitled Introduction to the New Testament. In fact, the class was popular among the football players at Notre Dame, not because they were particularly interested in the Bible, but because its tired old professor always gave the same one-question final exam, trace and discuss the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. A good answer to that one question earned for you an A in the class. Well, when it came time to take the exam that year, everyone was shocked when they turned over the test and it had a different question. It said, offer a critical analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, when they read the question, a sigh went up all over the room. 
No one was prepared for this question. But Joe noticed one of his linemen scribbling feverishly. Later, his teammate bragged that he had gotten a B plus on the exam. Joe asked him how he answered this surprise question. The fellow said, well, well, Joe, when I saw he wanted a critical analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wrote, who am I to criticize the words of the Master? But I do have something to say about the journeys of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) And then I wrote what I'd already prepared. And I could say to you this morning, well, Joe, when you stop criticizing the master and when you allow Jesus to call the shots in your life, a spiritual river of power and healing will begin to flow from deep within your heart. With the time I have left, I want us to examine how this future river spoken of in Ezekiel 47 acts like the living water of God's Spirit that flows and transforms us. There are three points that I want us to consider. How it spreads, what it spawns, and where it starts. How it spreads, what it spawns, where it starts. Three S's. Spreads, spawns, and starts. For as soon as a person surrenders their life to Jesus, I mean when you really turn control of your life over to Jesus and invite him to take the helm of your heart, a spigot turns on inside. God's river surges in in and through that person. As the river in Ezekiel 47 bubbled up in the temple, a river of spiritual influence springs up in the life of a Christian. And notice first, how this river spreads. It begins as mere seepage. It turns into a trickle, then into a stream, then into a creek, then into a mighty river. In essence, it builds gradually and incrementally. It widens and deepens as it flows. As we sang as kids, there's a fountain flowing deeper and wider. You know, when you first jump into the Christian life, the living water is fun. It's like a trip to the water park. It's like splashing in cool water on a hot summer's day. The word relief best sums up those early days as a Christian. Your sins are forgiven. The guilt is gone. The anvil you've been lugging around rolls off your shoulders. You're given a new lease on life. But as you go with the flow, that initial euphoric experience deepens and it widens. It's like Ezekiel's experience as he waded further and further into the river. The current got stronger. The flow got deeper. Finally, Ezekiel was submerged in over his head. And likewise, the further you go with God, the more profound, the heavier the experience becomes. You see, the longer I stand at the foot of the cross, the more I realize what it costs my Lord to earn my forgiveness. An appreciation grows that grips my allegiance. I realize that Jesus is not just my Savior, but He's also my Lord. His ways and will are best. I begin to want His influence to permeate more and more every area of my life. I want his wisdom to be the input to my thinking. 
In time, I even develop a desire to serve Him. My life begins to turn in directions that count for God. You know, talk to missionaries who've made huge sacrifices to follow Jesus, and they'll confirm that they didn't get there overnight. When they began with God, they had no idea where their path would take them. They were just happy to be forgiven. They just got in the flow. And by faith, it carried them places they never thought they'd go. But you see, it's this incremental progress that becomes a stumbling block for some folks. For they want to start from the high dive. Have you ever met somebody who likes jumping into the pool from the deep end? They're determined to be a spiritual giant from the start. It's a prideful attitude, really. If I can't be the greatest Christian ever, I just won't be one. You know, some people view being a Christian as self-achievement, as mastering a lifestyle rather than following the master. The truth is, God makes us all get into the pool at the shallow end where we can learn to swim correctly. This is why humility is the prerequisite for becoming a Christian. You begin by dismounting your high horse. You begin by humbling yourself. You embrace little child status, as Jesus put it. Realize when you begin anything, you do so as a beginner. Whether it's playing golf or woodworking or stock investing or being a Christian. There's no need to be embarrassed by it. You're just a beginner. None of us start out our Christian life with instant maturity. We're all a novice for a time. Nobody becomes a Christian in presto. He knows all the books of the Bible instantly and can quote scriptures and teach Bible studies. See, you get into the river at once, but going deeper requires you to wade further. Ezekiel started out ankle deep. Then he found himself knee deep, then waist deep. Then he got in over his head. But the important thing was that he got started. He stepped in. He trusted the river and went with the flow. Downstream, the water got deeper and wider. And Christian experience also deepens as you go. See, it starts out with a desire for God's forgiveness and for his blessing. But it ultimately changes my character and reroutes my lifestyle. It also widens as it goes. It starts as a personal interest for me and my needs, but eventually it broadens into a burden for others, perhaps even the whole world. Reminds me of the bank robber who hit the same bank three times in a row. When the police interviewed one of the tellers, they asked if she noticed anything different about the man. She answered, she said, well, yes, each time he robbed us, he seemed to be a little bit better dressed. Obviously, the robber was gaining some momentum. He was moving forward in his chosen line of work. And this is what happens when you continue on with God. The current gets deeper and it gets wider. You get caught up in the momentum. It grows stronger. It's amazing how sins that you once overlooked begin to bother you now. Your life grows purer and holier. You too become better dressed spiritually as you go. You no longer care about yourself. You start seeing other people's needs. It's amazing how the river spreads. 
But it's also interesting what the river spawns. In Ezekiel's vision, trees grow up along its banks that sprout fruit. There's even healing in their leaves. And when the river mixes with the stagnant waters of the Dead Sea, God's river wins. It does. It neutralizes the poison and it stimulates life. The living water allows life to hatch, fish to drink. It's a source of life. What does this river spawn? Well, in a word, it produces healing. And this is what the river of God brings to our hearts and our lives. The river of God's Spirit brings healing to us. I'm sure you've noticed this world is a cold, cruel place. It's a minefield armed with emotional bombshells that hurt us and harm us. Oh, the disappointments and the heartbreaks and the losses and the pain and the setback. How many of you have ever wondered if the enemy has slipped in and secretly booby-trapped your life? But whatever this river of God now touches, it heals. It neutralizes the acidic. The trees that are watered by this river have healing properties in their leaves. You know, while on earth, Jesus' ministry was characterized by numerous and incredible remedies, healings. The river flowed with healing then, and it flows with healing today. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus tells us why the Father sent him into the world. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, Jesus says. When the life-giving water of God begins to bubble up in your life, it slowly but steadily washes over open wounds. It neutralizes the bitterness, the hatred, the pride that kept those wounds infected. It now irrigates irritated areas, and it siphons off the emotional mucus that kept you from healing. The river of the Spirit brings healing wherever it flows and to whatever it touches. Let me just say, this is, what's need, this is what is needed today in our country. The racial tensions that exist today are eating us up. After all the progress that's been made politically, after the passage of so many civil rights legislation, after two terms of an African-American president, still no one trusts each other. Let me say, only Jesus can bring the healing that we need. As long as we're black and white, nothing will change. We need to be new creations, a third race as the Bible calls us. We need to be a new man in Christ. This is how we should see ourselves and how we should see each other. Here's what happens to people who are lost without Jesus. Stuff goes on outside of their life. They trip. They fall. They're slammed. They're let down by this world. They're victimized. And this is the same kind of stuff that goes on with Christians. We're vulnerable to the same trials and disappointments. We live in the same world with the same heartaches, but there's a difference. Stuff happens to me, but as a Christian, there is stuff going on inside of me to encourage me, to strengthen me. I'm not a stagnant pool anymore. My life is being irrigated by God's river, 
this river of spiritual life. And it's this river that keeps the healing flowing. If you've been hurt, even deeply so, if you've given your love to a person who then dumped you, if you gave years of hard work and productivity to a company that's now dumped you, if you gave your best efforts to an ungrateful child that has sadly now dumped you, if you just feel dumped on and rejected and pained, you need to get into the river. You need to splash and be baptized in God's healing river. Old people can jump in. Teenagers can jump in. Even married folks can jump in. But you need to get into the river. Trust me, the river of God's Spirit is powerful. And this river can't be explained. It carries miracle cures. When it collides with the salt water of doubt and fear and depression and lust and failure and hatred and prejudice, it strips sin's saltiness of its power. It answers the doubts and it calms the fears and it strengthens our weaknesses and it stirs up love and it brings healings to hurts. It cancels out the rejection of people with the overwhelming acceptance of God. It is a miracle river. Notice again verse 11. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. If you've ever been to a swamp or to a marsh, you know that the water just sits there stagnant. Scum festers on the surface. Bugs and flies circle over the top of the water. And if we're honest, we'll admit that there are some swampy and some marshy areas in our lives that remain sinful and poisoned and dead. We've become selfish and self-serving in a relationship. Or we've held on to a nasty habit. Or we've harbored an ugly bitterness. Is there an area of your life that's a spiritual swamp? It's the scummy part of your life, and it really bugs you? Well, it's happened for one simple reason. You've set up barriers that have kept the river from flowing into that area. Levees of pride, or dams of selfishness, or sandbags of stubbornness are blocking the river of God's Spirit from flowing into that area. You need to tear down those barriers today and let the river invade those swampy, stagnant areas. I repeat, wherever the river flows, it brings healing. It's amazing. The river Ezekiel sees in this chapter how it spreads, what it spawns, and then where it starts. Remember, Ezekiel first saw the water bubbling up under the threshold of the temple. Right by the altar. If the prophet had tried to jump into the river further downstream, he may have drowned. But Ezekiel took that first step, the first step of faith in the temple, right next to the altar. See, the river of God's Spirit flows through all of life. It fills up the valleys, and it flows through the desert, and it pours into the sea. But it always starts in the temple at the altar. 
And this is where each of us have to go to begin with God. We come to God on his own terms, on his turf, not ours. In a sense, God will meet you anywhere. At the swimming pool or at the pool hall. In the boardroom or at the boardwalk. In the bakery or in the factory. But wherever it is that God meets you, he always brings you back to the same place. To the beginning place. To the altar. If you had actually visited the former Jerusalem temple, the altar would have been your least favorite spot in the temple. You would have loved the inner courts, mind you. Especially the Ark of the Covenant, oh my. The glory of God hovered over the Ark. And you would have enjoyed the table of incense. Man, it gave off such a fragrant smell. And the golden lampstands, my, they were a work of art. Oh, you would have admired those lampstands. But the altar, that was the bloody place. That's where the sacrifices were offered. At the altar, you would have seen the innocent lamb bleeding as the priest grabbed its woolly neck and slit its throat and drained its blood. You would have heard that animal exhale a screech and then moan in agony and then release a final guttural gasp. Nobody ever liked to be taken to the altar. But in this new, still future temple, it's at the altar that the river starts. Today, the altar of God is not an altar in the temple. It's not the front of the church, even though sometimes we refer to the front of the church as the altar. No, today, the altar of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. For that's where the blood was shed. That's where the price was paid. At Calvary's cross, my sin and your sin were laid on Jesus' innocent shoulders. At his cross, Jesus paid our penalty and earned for us a permanent pardon. There's a famous photo that was snapped by a journalist named George Strzok which features three dead American soldiers on Buna Beach in New Guinea. This particular photo photo has since been titled, The Photograph That Won World War II. It was taken 18 months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And though tens of thousands of our fighting men had already died in battle, not a single photograph of a fallen American soldier had been put into print. But in September of 1943, the government relented and gave in to Life Magazine's insistence. For the government sensed that the civil commitment, civilian commitment to the war was beginning to wane. And the public needed to be reminded of the urgency of victory. This image made the conflict real. It showed the sacrifice. It made us realize the severity of what was going on. And it relit a spark in all Americans to do all that we could to support the war effort. And this is why the Christian life really does begin at the cross. For it is there that we see, we see what's happening. We we see our need. We see the severity of our sin. Why else would Jesus have to go there? And we see the depths of God's love for us. 
It's amazing that he did. And that's where our hearts learn to love Jesus and learn to love other people with a sense of urgency at the cross, at the altar. When you put a boat into the lake, you need a ramp. You need a launching point. And the same is true for us spiritually. And this is why for us, the river begins at the altar. There's no other way. There's no other entry point into the river. The cross is the getting in place for God's mighty river. Shun or scoff or ignore the cross of Jesus and your life will stay swampland. It will remain bland and boring and stagnant and polluted and terribly infected. If you don't begin at the altar, you'll never know the flow of God's love and healing and forgiveness. There is a fountain flowing deep and wide, but today it flows from the wounded side of Jesus. It all starts there. The healing bubbles up at the altar of the cross. If you want to go wading in this life-giving river of the Spirit of God, if you want God's influence and healing to spread deeper and wider in your life and in your world, then it starts on your knees next to the altar. All the miracles God will ever do in and through your life were paid for and originated at the cross of Jesus. You'll never be gloriously in over your head, drowning in God's love, if you don't humbly get in at the cross. This morning, I want to offer you two invitations. If you've never stepped into the miracle flow of God's life-giving river, I pray that you'll do so today. We're going to have some folks come up front here by the prayer room, and they're going to be happy to pray with you. And we invite you to come and get into the river. But there's a second invitation this morning. If there's a swampy, infected area in your life, I trust that you'll tear down whatever pride or fear or doubt there is that's blocking the river from flowing to you. For 2,000 years now, this river has brought healing wherever it flows. I hope you'll see for yourself. I hope you'll trust God. And jump in and go with the flow. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide.